So I don't know very much about gambling. I only know a couple of card games. I, I like to play cards, but for fun, you know. Gin rummy. Without the gin anymore. Oh, I don't know too much about gambling. I'm pretty sure I know what the phrase all in means. I'm pretty sure it means when you push in your whole, all your pile of chips, holding nothing back because you have so much confidence in the hand that you're playing. Does that sound about right? You're holding nothing back. You're going all in. Today I'd like to talk with you a little bit about going all in with Jesus. You know, on more than one occasion, Jesus made these kind of crazy, audacious statements that indicated that there are certain aspects of our experience with Jesus that can only be had if we go all in, if we hold nothing back. And so he said stuff like, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will find it, but whoever tries to save his life will lose it. That's pretty strong. That's pretty all in. Jesus wasn't said something like, unless you love me more than your family, you're not going to experience me. Jesus once said, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. So there are aspects of our relationship with Jesus that can only be had, only be fully had by going all in with him, holding nothing back. And that's what I'd like to talk with you about today from this passage in Luke chapter 21, which Pastor Tony read for us a little while ago about Jesus being in the temple. And he looked up and he saw these people making their offerings and the wealthy, it says, were giving out of their wealth. But this poor widow stepped up and in the process, she put in all that she had to live on and caught the attention of Jesus. Now, just to set your minds at ease, I'm not going to be preaching on the subject of money today. Revise, I reserve that for once a year. Usually a Sunday in January, I'll bring a teaching on the subject of that whole giving of our tithes and offerings to the Lord. Uh, there have been some years that I have neglected to do that altogether. <laughs> because by and large, you're a very generous people. You're a generous people, and I thank you for that, for your faithfulness in that, so that we don't have to be a church that talks about that. So thanks for that. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. The central message of this passage is that Jesus noted that this very poor woman went all in, that she gave everything that she had. As he looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, He also saw a poor widow put in two very small coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. 
Well, let's set the context for this so that we can get a hold of it and make some applications to our own lives. The context of this passage is that Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. If you read a couple of pages earlier in your Bible, you'll see that the triumphal entry had already occurred, meaning that Jesus had made that that epic ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, where people had lining the streets. They had come actually for the Passover, which was the annual celebration of of, God passing over, the angel of death passing over them in, in Egypt and their escape from Egypt. And this was, a, this was the highlight of the Jewish year. And so Jerusalem would have been just plugged with people, people everywhere. Jesus had just made his ride earlier into all of this whole scene. So it was a very, very crowded time, uh, the most crowded time of the year. People were fulfilling, some of them, their lifelong dreams to come from wherever they live to make an annual, or to, to make a lifetime pilgrimage, a life pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was, uh, it was something that every, every sincere Jew held in their heart that someday maybe I get to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So you can just imagine the level of intensity that's happening in Jerusalem at this time. And uh, what everybody didn't know is that Jesus was there to give his life for the sins of the world. While all these sacrifices, these Passover sacrifices were being made, Jesus was coming to make the final fulfillment of all sacrifices by giving his own life. And the book of Hebrews says that because of what Jesus did on the cross and his shed blood, that there would no longer ever be any other sacrifices needed. There are no longer any other sacrifices needed. That the blood of Jesus fulfilled what all of these sacrifices had been pointing to for these many centuries. That Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic prophecies and that he came and that what no one else knew is that Jesus was in town to do that. So there are no more sacrifices needed. Because the Bible says in Hebrews that by the blood of Jesus, Jesus gave his life and by his blood once and for all to cover the sins of those who have faith in him. So as we go on here, that's what's happening. Jesus uh, was in the Jewish temple. So he's in the center of the center of the center. So in Jerusalem is the temple that Solomon had built centuries earlier, and this was the centerpiece of all Jewish worship. That the synagogue system, just to differentiate for you between the temple and the synagogue, the synagogue was the local gathering place for Jewish worship wherever the town was. There weren't temples in each town. They were synagogues, which had the function of local worship, but the central worship place was this thing called the temple, this enormous this enormous construction uh, from Solomon's heart uh, to God's glory. And so this is the very center of activity. Look, everybody who came to Jerusalem for the Passover would have wanted to go to the temple. So it would have been plugged with people. Long lines would have been common even to get into the temple, which could hold thousands and thousands of people at a time. But there were likely more than 100,000 people who had come to plug the streets of Jerusalem while this is all going on. So Jesus goes to the temple amidst this big crowd and, and long lines. And what everybody else doesn't know is that Jesus is about to make the temple obsolete. Jesus is about to give his life, to give his life, the temple, 
and in three days be raised again and fulfill his own words that, the, that this temple will be destroyed and in three days be raised to life, which got him into all kinds of trouble with the Pharisees, right? Dun, dun, dun. Good. So this is what's happening. And Jesus, in the midst of all of this, is talking and people are listening. Not everyone was listening. But he had the attention of people, and he's talking, and he's teaching as he moves along here. And in so doing, then, he, he takes note of the offering that's being taken. Now, the offering isn't like we take the offering, where you say, okay, everybody, we're going to receive the offering. It's not a central point, it's not a moment, but it's an ongoing thing throughout Jewish worship in the temple. And Jesus takes note of the offering. Because the practice of tithing, of giving 10% of the, the first 10% of, the, their off, of their life, of their income, of their fruits, of whatever it is that they were about, was, uh, was part of their relationship with God. And um, additionally, in, in addition to the 10%, then various kinds of offerings were made. So the 10% was what they brought to God just customarily as the base, and then on top of that, then they added their offerings, a variety of subjects for offerings, fellowship offerings, and wave offerings, and they they had different ways of thinking about this. But from those tithes and offerings, then, the work of the temple could continue in two ways. Well, the, the actual aspect of the temple, both the facility of the temple and the support of the priests who served in the temple, where it was supported. But the other part of the work of the temple was that the poor could be cared for that the poor were cared for out of this, these, these temple tithes and offerings. Now, there were 13 receptacles in the temple, different places where you could place your offering. 13 different receptacles in one particular place in the offering. Are you ready for this? It's called the Court of Women. In the Court of Women, which uh, was about 40,000 square feet, to put that in perspective, about 10 times the size of our auditorium here, could accommodate about 15,000 people standing, that this was called the Court of Women. Why was it called the Court of Women? Because only women were allowed there? No, it's because as far as women could go. Because beyond that, when you started to move into the realm of the holy place, only men were allowed to proceed. And so this was the Court of Women. I'm not defending that. I'm just telling you what it was. And in this Court of Women... 200 feet square, so walls 200 feet long, in this court of women, where it was was in the walls, was placed 13 different offering receptacles. And uh, each of these 13 had a different purpose. Uh, Receptacles 1 through 9 were considered to be mandatory. It started with the temple tax. Maybe you've heard that phrase. And then it went on to sin offerings, and fellowship offerings and those sorts of things. And so there was a designation on these ornate boxes that received these offerings. And now on the top of these boxes was a brass bowl with a hole in the bottom. A big brass bowl with a hole in the bottom. And and so the offerings went into the top, into the brass bowl, and then down into the wooden box called the offering box. You following so far? So now, because these things had this big brass bowl looking up at you, they were often called trumpets. Because you had the, you had the effect of looking down into the, into, the, into the face of a trumpet, at the business end of a trumpet, if you will. 
And so these 13 receptacles were commonly called trumpets. Okay? And they were spaced throughout. Now it's very likely that, that these, these trumpets, 1 through 9, and then 10 through 13, which were, which were the optional trumpets, the offering that typically only the rich people could participate in, uh, because they because they would run the average person would run out of offering before they got to number ten. You following this? It's going to make a whole bunch of sense in a minute. You're going to go, "Are you serious?" Okay. So it was likely that they participated in these offerings in order, so that you come in and you you know you drop your first offering into the temple tax, clink clank, and on down it goes into the into the box, and then the next one. Clank, 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 clank. And you keep going. And so you can see that as you go, the wealthy are the ones who continue and make it all the way to number 13. Because the common person runs out of offering before they get there. Is it, are you following this? Okay. And so into these trumpets, these people would drop their offering. And the wealthy, of course would make a pretty big deal of the fact that they're up there 10, 11, 12, 13. And think about the noise that it would make of dropping these silver and gold coins into a brass receptacle. Clank, clank. And so they, would, they were known for making a pretty big deal out of this as I'm up here to number 12. Clank, 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 clank. Now, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6 real quickly. And let me explain something to you that's going to make a different kind of sense all of a sudden. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 1 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. I mean, how many of you like me have read that and seen them out there? I'm giving money! That's the way we would naturally interpret that. But don't announce it with the trumpets is what the phrase is. Don't announce it with the trumpets. So that you're going and going, clang, 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 clang. Is this making sense? Okay, so this is the context. This is the context. And uh, into this situation then, Jesus notices something. He notices this widow. It says, as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Collectively, these 13 trumpets were known as the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. They weren't even gold or silver. Now, whether whether she put both of them in the first one or whether she put one in the first one and another one in the second one, she only made it to the second trumpet. And this is who she was. She was that lady who could only, at best, make it to the second stop. 
when all these other pious Jews could go 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And here was this woman of no significance to society. She was a widow. That meant something. Now, if you read the Bible, you see that widows were in the center of the heart of God. Many times in the Old Testament, widows were in the center of the heart of God. James says, you know, the only kind of religion that God accepts is the kind that takes care of widows and orphans in their distress. Now, why were these widows in this position? Because they had no, no way to earn money. This is, a, this is a man society. Men had the jobs. Men made the money. And other than providing some kind of cottage industry at home, it was not common for a woman to be working. And so when their man died, their income died. And so then widows and orphans, the remaining children of these dead men, became a different kind of reality in Jewish society. Is this making sense? And so you got all these together people Clanking, 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 clanking their offerings in. Silver, gold, clang, clang. And in comes this woman with a couple of bits of copper. And Jesus noticed her. He observes this widow's actions and says, you know what? She's the one I was looking for. He's done more than all the rest. All of them. It's a collective word. Everybody else combined. She's the one I was looking for right there. Why? Because she's all in. Says these other people gave out of their wealth. Jesus is using their money as an illustration of their lives. These These everybody else gave out of their wealth. That it was part of their life. But this woman, it was her life. She was all in. Is Jesus recommending that everybody gives all of their money to the church? Is Jesus recommending that poor people give all their money to the church? What kind of financial strategy is that, Jesus? He's using it as a point. It's about going all in with him. If you want to experience the deeper things of God, you're not going to do it at arm's length. You're not going to do it in part, but going all in. I mean, what was it that this widow did that caught Jesus' attention? Was it her humility? Was it her sacrifice? I think it was her utter dependence on God. I mean, if she put these two coins in, she's done. She's got nothing. We've seen an example of this in the Old Testament, haven't we? With a Elijah and this widow woman who had just a little bit of flour and oil left. Enough for she and her son to make one last loaf, eat it, and die. And along comes the prophet Elijah and says, Ooh, don't make that for yourself. Make it for me. A little presumptuous on his part, I think. I'm not sure I could work up that kind of a comment. But his point is, here's your opportunity to go all in. And she went all in. And maybe you know the rest of the story. Maybe you don't. But here's how it goes. That every time that woman went back to check on the supply of flour and oil, there was more. There was always a supply. Because she went all in. 
She went all in with God. Jesus compared this woman to people who gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she had, uh, she had just demonstrated this utter dependence on God. You know, when people set up their life that way, like, I'm going to give this part of my life to God. And let's continue to use money as the example. Because even though Karen and I practice tithing, we understand that really it's all his. And so all of it needs to be not only used in ways that we feel he has directed us, but also everything we have is available to the body of Christ. So that's aside. But what about, what about this thing? Jesus uses money. And he uses money so much to make the point, doesn't he, in the Bible? That when we give out of our wealth as though it's part, okay, I'm going to give this part to God, then we set up this kind of dichotomy where you have the God part of your life and then the rest of your life. And in Deuteronomy, way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, let's go to chapter 8. You know, the Jews had fallen into this same trap. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the fifth book of, of the Bible, as those of you who are in DT 100 now know, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's talking about what God has done, and let's start in verse 15. It says, He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought water out of a hard rock. He said, this is what God's done for you. And then he says, He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your forefathers had never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. I don't know if you feel like you're in a testing time. Well, the... The promise of that is in the end it will go well with you. In verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. I did this. I'll give what I want. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. And so Jesus comes along and he makes these kind of comments that you can't serve two masters. You can't set up this dichotomy that this is God's part of my life and this is my part of my life. In the end, we won't fully experience what God has for us. So how does this translate into our lives? Two brief things here. Number one, it calls us to shift our understanding of having a relationship with God the Father from being an important part of our lives over to the place where it becomes the very point of our lives. This is a critically important distinction. I think one of the most dangerous aspects of contemporary American Christianity is that we have, we have been so successful. And we've been so successful in making the gospel so accessible. Now don't get me wrong. I, I'm committed to putting the cookies on the bottom shelf so people can get it. But the trade-off there is then it seems to become sort of an easy sort of life enrichment portion of my life rather than the point of my life. It's kind of up there with a fat-free diet or, you know, a stress-relieving meditation technique. You know, you got Jesus to throw in there too to enrich your life because we've made it so accessible. And in reality, it's not meant to be part of our lives. It's meant to be the point of our lives. 
And in order to experience the fullness of God, we need to get there. Which is the second part of this. It gives us more insight about how we can each experience God on a profoundly personal level. The book of James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the promise of God. And some of you are maybe frustrated at this point. You know, I hear you guys talking about experiencing God, but I haven't, I haven't had that yet. I want it. Well, let me ask you this question. Are you all in? Are you all in? Or are you hoping to come, you know, on the Sunday morning and go, boy, I just hope the band's really good, or I hope Tom's on, or whatever, however you kind of categorize that stuff in your mind. I hope I go somewhere where I can, it's part of your life. I hope I park my car in the right parking lot. I hope, I go, I hope I'm going to the best church. You know, there's a statement that we use that would have been foreign to the first century church. And that is, are you going to church? Are you going to church? What, what do you even mean by are you going to church? We are the church. And we're always the church. We're not the church on Sunday mornings. We're always the church. What do you mean you're going to church? You're going to leave this part of your life and go to the church part of your life? I wouldn't be surprised at all if you're going, man, I'm frustrated with this. I'm tired of listening to you talk about how you can experience God because I come here and I see it happening. Maybe evidence of it happening with other people is not happening. Are you all in? Are you all in? If you're all in, you'll experience God. If you're not experiencing God, you're not all in. There are aspects of your life that you're holding back and compartmentalizing. And compartmentalizing is a sure path to religion. Religion over relationship. That's what religion is. It's making a compartment for the spiritual aspect of your life. And saying, come and do these things. Fulfill these obligations. But you will not experience God that way. Jesus said, you guys, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I don't have your hearts. What else do you say about your hearts? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you all in? I'm not criticizing. I'm inviting. Lord, come. You went all in for us. Lord, come. There are many here today who are wanting the things that they hear about. There are many who are wanting more. And so, Lord, with no judgment, I just ask, would you just show us all where we're not all in? Would you show us where we're holding back, where we're reserving a part in case this doesn't work out? Would you show us how to answer these these things that you've said about following you and loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't even know what this means, Lord. We're not even brought up in a culture that has models of that. We've got to discover this, Lord, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit in this room now, that you will release the veil from our eyes, that you will take the scales off so that every person can see. Every person can see your outstretched arms and saying, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Come, Lord, I pray. All in. You know, I feel like I need to tell you this part, you guys, that 
Going all in with Jesus will not turn you into a religious fanatic. It's, it has exactly the opposite effect. When you go all in, we're, we're not talking about now you need to go out and be one of those Bible thumpers that you've been running away from for so long. That's not what we're talking about. You suddenly have to start using this old Shakespearean language or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the opposite. The thing called being naturally supernatural. Being in abiding in Christ and being in a relationship with God so that it's not part of your life, but it's all of your life and you're always in it. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Come to every person, every seeking heart in this room right now. Come, Lord, I pray. And come crashing through the barriers. Come cra- crashing through the opposition, the objections, the doubts. Only you can solve this, Lord. And so I pray for them. I pray that those who are, are just thirsty for you be shown those realities of their lives that aren't all the way in yet. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. I know some people who are all in. Some people in this very room are all in. There are examples of people in this room who are all in. You know what I'm talking about. You're agreeing with what I'm saying. You're praying for people right now. And you, like me, are going, I don't think I'm all in. You don't even know it. (laughs) There are examples of people in this room right now. You're all in. And your light's in the darkness. Come on, Lord. Come on. Come on. Lord, we can't keep talking about you without experiencing you. Come on. Lord, we can't keep living off the account of other people's experiences. We can't keep eating off of other people's tables. Come on, Lord. Come on. 